Hello and welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Hagee. So guns, you've heard of them. We're closing in on 400 million of them in America. That's some huge percentage of all the privately owned guns in the world. Now we also have ghost guns and kits where you can make them at home. It's do-it-yourself. And those are particularly handy for people who want to commit crimes. They have no serial numbers on them, uh, so they can't be traced uh, for, uh, you know like they can if you uh, if you buy one from a that's made by an actual license licensed manufacturer um, so so that's that gun deaths that's a big number uh, according to a BBC report which was based on the statistics from the Centers for Disease Control there were 1.5 million gun deaths between 1968 and 2017. As they described it, that's a number that's higher than the number of soldiers killed in every U.S. conflict since the American War for Independence. So in uh, 2020 alone, there were more than 45,000 deaths, whether they were by homicide or suicide or accident. That's more than any other year on record. They say that represents a 25% increase from five years prior and a 43% increase from 2010. So for those of you who would like a summary of that, gun deaths are way up. There are a lot of them, and there are a lot more of them. A CNN SSRS poll says that the vast majority of the nation favors universal background checks. A lot of us think they have them, or we have them. And we do, for the most part, but we don't. Polls show that 8 or 9 in 10 Americans want these background checks. Nearly 70% say the government and society can take action that would effectively prevent mass shootings. Still, 30 percent of people polled say gun laws wouldn't make any difference. There's intense support for more regulation, also outpacing intense opposition. 52% of Americans strongly favor stricter laws, while 19% strongly oppose them. Americans want tighter gun laws. That's all there is to it. It's just a fact. And like most anything else these days, it all breaks along party lines. Uh, You want stricter gun control? Well, Democrats do. 90% of Democrats polled want them. Republicans, uh, let's see, only 40% of them want it. That's still a lot of Republicans. Independents, or they came in at 65% wanted tighter gun laws. That's exactly the midpoint between 40 and 90%, if my math is correct. It's often not. A survey from uh, Morning Consult and Politico showed that 73% of respondents strongly support universal background checks, and 15% somewhat support the requirement. 8%. They completely oppose or somewhat oppose background checks. Okay, so I think I've done my job of over-citing statistics uh, and beat that one right into the ground. But I think the point is clear. Americans want tighter gun laws. The Supreme Court didn't exactly get that memo. That was sarcasm. You know, you have to say that the Supreme Court's looking at the law and not the result. But that's a debate for another day. But they overturned a a ban in New York City that was in place since 1913, which didn't allow people to carry guns, uh, concealed guns, uh, outside the home. But now the New York Democratic leaders are responding by prohibiting the carry of firearms in many public places that they deem, quote, sensitive places. And that includes things like colleges, hospitals, subways, parks, stadiums, uh, and they added Times Square. On the heels of that ruling, The Supreme Court threw out several lower lower court rulings that had upheld gun restrictions 
including bans on assault-style rifles in Maryland and large-capacity ammunition magazines in New Jersey and California. Along came, uh, at the federal level, President Biden signed into law the Bipartisan Safety Communities Act. It was bipartisan. It was so bipartisan and so unusual that it was bipartisan. The word bipartisan is actually in the title. It's the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. The new law does a lot of good investing in, but not as much as the Democrats had hoped. Uh, According to a CNN SSRS poll, 4 in 10 of those polled say that the the new law doesn't go far enough. One of the uh, several noteworthy omissions was requiring purchasers of semiotic weapons to be 21 years old. Another was requiring background checks for private sales. It's uh, designed to keep Guns out of the hands of dangerous people. It was a product of compromise, which is something which we haven't seen at, at, in our government for quite a while. It enhances background checks for gun buyers between 18 and 21 years old. It gives incentives to states to enact red flag laws that enable firearms to be temporarily taken away from people who are deemed dangerous. It provides hundreds of millions of dollars for mental health and school safety. It also extends to dating partners, a federal law that prohibits domestic abusers from from buying guns. So throwing a lot of money at this, uh, it invests in uh, effective community policing by funding and hiring and training 100,000 additional police officers, establishes a $15 billion grant program to provide cities and states resources to prevent crime and advance equity through supportive services, invests $5 billion in community violence intervention programs, $3 billion to help communities clear court backlogs and solve murders, a lot of unsolved murders increases funny to the funny it increases funding it's just not funny not funny not something funny about this to the bureau of alcohol tobacco firearms and explosives or atf to hire agents and investigators to help keep firearms out of the hands of dangerous people speaking of california governor newsom gavin newsom to his friends signed in a new uh, gun control bill that mimics texas's anti-abortion law in that it enlists state residents to uh, to join the fight. And uh, in Texas, as everybody probably knows, uh, residents are given incentives to assist in identifying people who assist a pregnant person in obtaining an abortion. So in California, you can now take legal action against those who make, sell, transport, or, or distribute illegal assault weapons, like 50 caliber rifles and ghost guns that I mentioned. And for damages, they can collect at least $10,000 per weapon, plus attorney's fees, etc. We can expect some litigation over this. It's already begun uh, with more to come. Probably probably the most high-profile uh, piece of litig- litigation that came after the tragic Sandy Hook mass shooting of kids. Families of, of the Sandy Hook victims were able to get $73 million from gunmaker Remington, over the manufacture and marketing of the Bushmaster assault weapon. In one of Remington's ads, it featured a rifle against a plain backdrop and the phrase, consider your man card reissued. A man card. Remington had uh, had argued that there was no evidence to establish that its marketing had anything to do with the shooting. So there will be more litigation. I mean, it's, it's already pouring in and uh, more to come. And that's about all I know about the issue. But fortunately for you, uh, I've got somebody who knows quite a bit more. Adam Skaggs serves as Gifford's Law Center's Chief Counsel and Policy Director. 
Previously, he was senior counsel at Every Town for Gun Safety and at the Brennan Center for Justice, where he worked on election law issues. So Adam's in the thick of some hot topics. He was also a litigation counsel of Paul Weiss. His commentary has been published in Slate, Politico, The Atlantic, New York Times, and other publications. And he's been uh, quoted by media ranging from the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, and The New York Times, and MSNBC. And now, the Emerging Litigation Podcast with your host, Tom Hagee. He's going to add that to his resume. Adam graduated summa cum laude from Brooklyn Law School, received his MS in Urban Affairs from Hunter College of the City University of New York. He has a BA, awarded with distinction from Swarthmore College. That's near me. So let's get to it. Here's my interview with Adam Skaggs, Chief Counsel and Policy Director at the Giffords Law Center. I hope you enjoy it. Adam Skaggs, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me. It's good to uh, have a chance to talk with you, Tom. Good. So just kind of a general statement first. It seems like there's a shift when it comes to addressing the gun issue in America. It seems like over the last couple of years, it's moved more toward gun safety rather than let's ban everything or let's put super, super tight controls on everything which makes sense as a young man growing up in Ohio. It seems like when you're born in Ohio, they just kind of hand you a shotgun. And your father typically would teach you how to use it safely. Like don't walk with your finger on the trigger and don't point it at anyone and things like that. Assume it's loaded. So it resonates with me that safety and storage and things like that. Would you say that's accurate? Well, I think that's probably accurate. We've just seen a bipartisan group come together and pass a significant gun safety legislation in the Congress, including almost two thirds of the Senate. 65 senators coming together to endorse a bipartisan package. And that hasn't happened for a generation, you know, almost 30 years since we've seen Congress being able to get over the divisive politics of guns and gun safety. And so I think that that's a significant development that we need to acknowledge. And I don't think anyone on either side of the issue is 100% satisfied with the package that did pass the Senate uh, and pass the Congress, I should say. But I think there's something in there for both sides of the issue. I think uh, it's a significant, not to say it's going to solve the problem of gun violence entirely, not to say it's a game changer, but it's a significant step forward. And I think we are excited to think that the sort of logjam has broken to some degree and that we may be able to actually make some additional progress on the issue. Yeah, it gave me some hope too. In general, you know, they always joke that if both sides are unhappy, it's a good compromise. But it also, if they could both be unhappy, but move forward on many subjects, we'd be a lot better off. And yeah, and I saw criticism, obviously everybody saw criticism from both sides, but also there's not going to be a perfect solution. But as you said, you know, incremental steps in the right direction is at least it's steps in the right direction. So you can't make a big step without taking some initial little steps. So I think that that legislation is significant. We can obviously talk about the details if that's useful, but I just want to point out that we're also seeing progress at the state level. You know, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of positive gun safety laws passed at the state level in the last few years. And so that's progress as well. Obviously, there's also movement in the other direction. A number of states have relaxed rules on things like carrying guns in public. And I think when we've seen those steps in 
that direction. Unfortunately, we've seen more people getting shot. We've seen more people being killed. So I don't want to paint a picture that's unrealistically rosy. You know, the country is often going in opposite directions. And certainly the gun safety issue is one in which we see that. So, you know, we need to take in the full picture. But in doing so, I don't want to lose the glass half full part of the picture because I think there is significant progress. And I think in particular, congressional legislation we've just been talking about is a significant sign of that. So you brought that up. So what do you think about that legislation? What are the pros and cons of it? Well, I, you know, broadly speaking, I think the cons are just that it didn't do a lot of the things that we've been advocating for that we think are important. You know, a huge percentage, depending on the poll, 85, 90, 95% of Americans support requiring universal background checks. Before you can buy a gun, you got to pass a background check. I would challenge you to find a, a listener or find someone out there who doesn't think you should have to pass a background check. And this legislation didn't require universal background checks. So there's still progress to go. I don't want to hide the ball on that. But what this legislation did do, it provides significant funding for community violence intervention. That is to say, people who are involved on the front lines of the fight against gun violence, working with those most likely to be involved, whether as a victim or a perpetrator of gun violence. So there's significant millions of dollars to support that work, millions of dollars to support states implementing so-called extreme risk laws. That These are laws that allow a court, when presented with evidence that somebody poses a risk to themselves or to others to temporarily uh, suspend their access to firearms. So there's millions of dollars to implement those laws, millions of dollars for mental health services, particularly in schools. That's all positive. The legislation authorizes more detailed, heightened background checks for people under the age of 21. So if you've got an 18-year-old trying to buy an assault weapon, the legislation authorizes doing some additional looking into their background to make sure they don't pose a risk. I mean, look at these teenage mass shooters that we've just seen in the past several months in places like Buffalo, Valde, Highland Park. So we'll have the ability to have enhanced background checks for underage purchasers of assault weapons and other firearms. It closes the boyfriend loophole under federal law. Somebody who's convicted of domestic violence, if they're not a spouse of or living with or you know have a child with the victim that they've been convicted of domestic abuse, up until now, they were able to buy firearms. Mm-hmm. Whereas a spouse would be prohibited, but a boyfriend wouldn't. Well, this is going to close that loophole to some degree. So that's a significant development. And then the bill also makes a federal crime for gun trafficking and illegally buying a gun for somebody that you know is prohibited. A lot of Americans would be surprised to know that there really wasn't a federal gun trafficking crime until just a couple of uh, you know days ago. So in all these ways that the bill or the law, I should say, I think improves the picture and helps us move forward. And again, no one's saying we finished the job and this is going to solve gun violence. America has a gun violence epidemic. It's unlike any of our peer countries. And uh, there's a ton of work to do. And We need to use every tool that we can to address it and mitigate this problem. But I do think this is a positive step forward. And I think most significantly, the fact that we've made any step forward, even if it's just an incremental step, is significant. You know, it's been a generation. It's literally been since the 90s, since Congress has been able to act on this. And I think that just shows that the public is fed up. The public has had enough. They're demanding that their leaders take action to respond to this ongoing crisis. It's not a coincidence that this log jam has been broken. It's not a coincidence that these Republicans who, uh, who, who came forward to support this legislation, they didn't do so in a vacuum. 
They did so because they went home. They talked to their constituents after these horrific mass shootings that we've seen, you know, school children being gunned down in their classrooms. And they heard from their constituents, independents, Democrats, Republicans, all of them just, you know, uniformly crying out for action. And that's what got us to where we are. So I'm hopeful that we can continue to build on this progress and that what we've seen in in the past couple of weeks will just be a foundation on which to continue building an appropriate response to the gun violence crisis. And that's a good general lesson for people or anything that making a lot of noise actually does matter more you can do than just vote. <laughs> so it's nice that pressure work. Absolutely. The, uh, I, the, the thing that I, I always, we always talk about universal background checks. What's not universal about them now? Because I went to buy a shotgun to take my nephew skeet shooting and uh, I had a background check. So where is it not universal? Yeah. And I hazard to guess it wasn't a uh, major inconvenience. It wasn't a, a huge hassle to undergo that background check. You, you know, you fill out, it's called a form 4473, but you fill out some paperwork and they run your name and, you know, assuming you don't have a lengthy criminal record or conviction for domestic violence, that kind of thing, it's not going to be a real interference with your ability to buy a gun and purchase, whether for skeet shooting or otherwise. So what's not universal about background checks, because a lot of people do think they have your experience. They went to a gun store, they collected the model they wanted to buy, and they purchased it, and it really wasn't an inconvenience. What people don't realize is that in the majority of the country, in most states in the country, While it's true that if you go to a gun store, if you go to a federally licensed gun dealer, which is basically your brick and mortar gun shop, you're going to have to take a background check. And that's how most people buy guns. And so most people assume that you're going to have to take a background check. But in most states in the country, if you buy a gun from just a private citizen, private seller, who's not a brick and mortar gun store, they don't have to run a background check. And so in the majority of the country, if you are somebody who has a felony conviction, if you are someone who's prohibited from having a gun because of domestic violence or because you've been committed to a mental hospital, if you went to the store and you filled out the paperwork and you tried to buy a gun, you'd be prohibited from the system. They'd get a a decline and they wouldn't sell you the gun. But if you then go to an internet website and see somebody trying to sell a gun and you meet them in the parking lot behind a McDonald's or a Wendy's, they can sell you that gun without any background check whatsoever. And so those private sales are ones that don't require a background check. And what a number of states have done and what we certainly advocate for is if you're a private seller, you're just a regular citizen, you know, you have some guns in your collection, maybe you want to sell them to earn some money, maybe you want to sell them to buy a new firearm conduct that at a dealer, run a background check through a dealer on the stranger that you're selling the gun to. Now, if you're selling a gun to your brother or sister or you know siblings, that kind of thing, there are going to be exceptions for people that are well known to you. And we're not trying to make people run a background check uh, when they give a gift from a parent to a child of the, their first rifle, that kind of thing. But what we are saying is if you meet a stranger on an internet website or through a classified ad and, and you don't know anything about this person or their background, go ahead and make sure that they pass a background check, that they don't have that kind of criminal record, that they aren't prohibited legally from owning the weapon before you go ahead and make that sale. That's all we're saying should be required. Again, you know, 85, 90, 95% of Americans agree with that. And so I don't think this is anything radical. I don't think this is anything that interferes with anybody's rights. I would submit, you can speak for yourself, obviously, but I would submit that when you had to fill out that paperwork before you bought that shotgun, it didn't interfere with any constitutional rights. It wasn't a massive inconvenience. And that's all we're asking. It's a common sense measure to make sure people that are intent on doing harm, people with criminal intentions, just don't have an easy ability to get their hands on a firearm. 
So if I could ask, what would you think would be the next couple of realistic steps we could take that would have an impact? Would that be one of them, universal background checks? Requiring background checks is certainly the first and and maybe most important step. You know, I I also would say one of the pieces of this legislation that Congress just passed is support for states that are implementing so-called extreme risk laws. Again, these are laws that, uh, you know, if you have a family member or if law enforcement becomes aware of somebody who's, let's say, threatening to shoot up a school or threatening to commit a workplace uh, violence or somebody who's talking about suicide. You can go to a court and say, look, you know, here's the social media postings this person said, or here's what the threats that this person made to do self-harm or to, you know, hurt their schoolmates or, or whatever it may be. And you can get an order that it's a temporary order. This isn't going to prevent someone from having a firearm for their whole life. This is just going to be for the duration of the crisis that someone's going through. And you can get a court order that says, look, until you can resolve your whatever you're going through, you're not going to be able to buy a firearm or legally possess a firearm. So these kinds of tools that are tailored, you know, we're not talking about uh, lifetime prohibitions on anyone having guns. We're talking about when there's clear evidence that somebody is posing a threat, you can temporarily make sure they don't have a firearm. And, And particularly, you know, these mass shootings we've seen lately with these young people 18, 19, 20 years old committing these crimes, you know, give a person like that a year, give a person like that five years and and get them some assistance and some help. Maybe they're not as at risk of committing the horrific acts that we've seen committed in recent months. So that those are the kinds of tools that I think we certainly support and and that we are hopeful that we'll be able to pass in in additional states. These kinds of laws that are tailored to people showing the the most credible uh, and and clear signs of danger. Uh, These laws have been passed in red states and blue states. They've been signed by Republican governors and Democratic governors. And I think it's the type of thing that, you know, shows this issue doesn't have to be politically divisive on every level. Like we can reach consensus. We can come together on some of the most basic public safety measures. Um, And these extreme risk laws are one area where I think we have, and I think we can continue to show some bipartisan progress. So I want to get your insights on the role of litigation. But before I do that, I just want to say, because I'm out there on social media, I'm reading, I've got friends who are opposed to this and opposed to that. And you sound extremely extremely reasonable. <laughs> well, I guess I'll just say thank you for that. I mean, look, I, uh, you know, uh, again, this is an issue that a lot of people think is just going to be divided. It's going to be divisive. People are never going to agree on anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's wrong. People are going to disagree on the margins and they're going to fight about the extreme left or the extreme right taking positions that are out of step with the majority of the country. But these basic ideas, like people who have demonstrated a record of threatening to cause damage to others, people who have lengthy criminal records and have been involved in violent crime, maybe we should keep them from having deadly weapons. These are not controversial positions. The idea that a five minute or or a 90 second background check uh, to make sure that you're not somebody who has a demonstrated record that you can't be really safely trusted to have a firearm. You know, these aren't interference with constitutional rights or any rights whatsoever. These are just common sense things that people across the spectrum, you know, Democrat, Republican, independent, they agree on in huge numbers. I mean, show me the issue that you can get 90% of the American public to agree on. You know, maybe (laughs) maybe puppies and ice cream are about the only thing you get 90% of people to agree that that we favor, but they do that we should have background checks. So, you know, again, I think there's a huge swath of the public that agrees with some basic measures. And uh, frankly, it's just time for our elected officials to stop listening to extremists on one side of the issue or another, to stop listening to the gun lobby and the extremists that would say that any gun law whatsoever violates, you know, some kind of basic freedom 
and to just start to put into law what these vast majorities of Americans agree with. Well, my personal commentary on that is I think some of it has more to do with rallying up voters than it does yep. with anything else is with so many issues. But the so let's get to, to litigation. Just generally speaking, is there litigation we should be watching or more broadly, what do you think the role of litigation plays in this? Well, I think it probably plays more than two roles, but certainly two roles I think are worth emphasizing. The first is that the extremists who think that any gun law is an infringement of basic freedoms and constitutional rights are challenging these laws. You know, we talk about these laws, we have been talking about these laws that have, you know, 80, 90% support from the public. But when we are finally able to get these laws passed, often not an hour or two go by before they're challenged. There are extremists that would suggest that any gun law that's passed is one law too many. And whether it's raising the minimum age to buy an assault rifle to 21, there are those of us out there that think you shouldn't be able to buy a military weapon of war before you can legally buy a six pack of beer. Those laws will be challenged, whether it's restrictions on particular types of firearms, whether it's restrictions on carrying guns in certain public spaces. Whenever we pass these laws, they are challenged and they're challenged rapidly by an extreme fringe of uh, an extremist political movement. So that's one area of litigation. And By and large, courts have been supportive of the ability of democratically elected lawmakers to enact gun safety laws. And so most of these overreaching challenges to gun safety laws have failed in the past. But we have uh, an extreme ultra-conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court now that just uh, last month struck down a more than 100-year-old restriction on carrying guns in public in New York and basically said more people have a right to carry guns in public and we're going to see more people, whether it's driving down the highway or driving down, you know, Main Street or, you know, walking through a shopping mall. The Supreme Court has said, nope, we can't restrict carrying guns in public. So that's going to pose some challenges. So that's one area of litigation is an extreme sort of, I would say, a radical component of society that thinks any gun law is one law too many and is challenging them. But then on the other side, you have litigation that is seeking to uh, mitigate some of the costs of gun violence. So the Sandy Hook families, after the tragedy at Sandy Hook in Newtown, Connecticut, brought a lawsuit against Bushmaster, the the company that sold the assault weapon that was used in that massacre, and held them accountable and and reached a kind of record-breaking settlement with, uh, with the insurance companies for that gun company. So we have seen in recent months and years, an attempt to hold gun companies uh, that are engaged in marketing militaristic weapons to civilians that are engaged in really highly questionable marketing uh, and advertising accountable for the damage that their products uh, can sell. So I think we're going to be seeing more of that as well. We've seen lawsuits against the most irresponsible members of the firearms industry. My organization, Giffords Law Center, is involved in you know various lawsuits against so-called ghost gun companies. And we've just seen a, a couple of major lawsuits in New York against these uh, companies. These are companies that sell essentially do-it-yourself firearms where you get kits uh, and build your own firearm. And at the end of the day, after, you know, sometimes as little as 15 minutes putting these together, they function just the same as, you know, a Glock pistol that you buy that you'd have to have a background check, but they don't have serial numbers. They don't require background checks. These irresponsible companies are profiting from marketing practices that are distinctly designed to uh, sell guns to people that can't legally purchase them. They evade background checks. Again, they evade having serial numbers. So, you know, we've seen a wave of litigation against these sort of fringe, uh, really irresponsible actors in the firearms industry. 
And I think we're going to see more of that, you know, as the industry gets uh, bolder and bolder and defies really what Americans would expect of uh, responsible economic actors, we're going to see litigation to hold them uh, accountable. And I think we're going to see more of it. And I think that's a good thing. Are there cases pending right now that we should be watching that you're watching? There are a number of cases. I mean, again, after that Supreme Court decision, I, I mentioned there's just a, it's really, I mean, it's not even a tidal wave. It's really just a tsunami of cases that are being litigated in the courts. And they're doing things like challenging minimum age laws, challenging restrictions on assault weapons, challenging access to kind of large capacity magazines that study after study has shown increase the casualty counts, increase body counts when we have these mass shooting incidents. So there's a huge volume of litigation in that front. But there's also litigation on the other side, as I've described. Unfortunately, Lately, we've seen these horrific mass shootings in Buffalo, New York, and in Uvalde, Texas, in Highland Park, Illinois. And I think the families who have lost loved ones who have perhaps survived being shot themselves, those victims are going to be looking to hold accountable not just the, the shooters, but the industry that uh, provided those shooters with the tools to commit those atrocities. And I'll pause just there to say what we've seen in recent years is the industry moving away from things like selling handguns for self-defense or rivals and shotguns for hunting and sport purposes. And it's really moved into an aggressive space of selling tactical combat style, not only firearms in terms of things like the AR-15 style assault weapons, but tactical gear, body armor, combat style helmets. When you see someone like the shooter in Buffalo who encountered an armed guard who attempted to engage the shooter and was armed, you know, to use the NRA's words, the good guy with the gun trying to stop the bad guy with the gun. Well, when the bad guy with a gun is equipped with, you know, body armor and military style tactical gear and a combat helmet, and you have a former law enforcement officer equipped with your standard issue handgun, well, you know, it's it's not a fair fight. And we saw what happened there. The security guard was killed and you're outgunned by an assailant who's equipped for a battlefield in Iraq or Afghanistan. Go back 15 years to look at that kind of body armor at a trade show sponsored by the industry. You had to either be law enforcement or military. You had to have ID to get into that section of the gun show and look at that kind of body armor for sale. Well, today, the companies supplying that kind of tactical gear are dead center at the gun shows. You don't have to have any kind of law enforcement background to equip buy that equipment. And so it's not a surprise that you know people intent on doing harm are going to equip themselves. So, you know, it's not your... Uh, grandfather's good guy with a gun anymore, because the only good guy with a gun that's equipped to stop somebody intent on doing harm, who's armed and equipped by the industry, given how low the standards of responsibility in the industry have sunk, the only person that's going to be able to stop someone like that, you know, a SWAT officer who's uh, head to toe in this kind of tactical gear. So the industry has sunk to new lows in terms of seeking profits and is selling gear to your average citizen that's really has no place in a civilized society uh, other than on a battlefield. So I want to get this out to as many lawyers as I can. So what role, if lawyers wanted to work with you or address these issues in some of these cases, what would you tell them? Did you, do you offer resources or support or what would you say? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'd say there are a few organizations that have lawyers on staff, legal teams like Giffords Law Center, my, my organization, that are trying to do this work, whether it's defending laws or challenging irresponsible practices on, on the part of the industry. But I would say for lawyers that are just out there, private practice and members of the private bar, partner with organizations like Gifford Law, Gifford's Law Center. We have a 
really broad uh, network of pro bono volunteers that work with us, uh, you know, whether it's just researching gun safety laws and trying to figure out the kind of legislation we need to pass, whether it's helping us defend common sense gun safety laws from these extremist challenges, or whether it's actually bringing lawsuits to challenge, whether it's ghost gun sellers, whether it's people selling tactical combat body armor to civilians, there's a role for private lawyers and I would encourage them to, you know, reach out to organizations like Giffords Law Center to find out how they can get involved. Well, I'll make sure we get the word out. So, Adam, thank you very much for speaking with me about this today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. That concludes this episode of the Emerging Litigation Podcast. You've been listening to Adam Skaggs, who is Chief Counsel and Policy Director at the Giffords Law Center which was founded by former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. The center is a nonprofit organization that, as they put it, shifts culture, changes policies, and challenges injustice, inspiring Americans across the country to fight gun violence. They are one of the leading organizations that advocate for gun safety in America. If you want to get involved uh, or support them, you can visit them on the web at giffords.org. This podcast is a co-production of HB Litigation, Law Street Media, and Fast Case. If you have questions or would like to reach me, write to editor at litigationconferences.com. This podcast is the audio companion to the Journal on Emerging Issues in Litigation, published by Fast Case Full Court Press. I am Tom Hagee, Editor-in-Chief and host of this podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it valuable. <laughs>